Welcome to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively captures insightful conversations with people contributing to advancement of space activities in India. The New Space India podcast is pleased to announce our association with Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing business and people with collaborative virtual environments to imagine sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions support startups small and medium-sized enterprises, and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellite propulsion. Recently, a supply chain digitization study with Dassault Systems was conducted to provide a foundational understanding of the supplier landscape in the Indian space ecosystem. Please use the link in the description to download the public white paper of the results of this study which will also give you a perspective on how ready Indian suppliers are to enter the global space market. Welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. And here we have Dr. Ranganath Navalgund, who has spent a tremendous amount of time at ISRO. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about his career in ISRO and some of the insights around uh, you know, what's gone, gone on with uh, satellite remote sensing and you know, geospatial analytics and so on with ISRO for the last 30 to 40 years. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much uh, for this uh, invitation. And it would be my pleasure to talk to you on uh, my experiences of the last uh, 40 years, almost, yeah, since I joined in 1977. Now you did talk about, you know, you joining in uh, 1977. Yeah, so how did I you, think... you know, occur? How did you, for a... How did you know about ISRO then? And you know what was your interest in space or how did you yeah. land up in ISRO? Yeah, yeah, I think I must give a brief background to this. Uh, obviously, I didn't know ISRO uh, at all uh, when I was uh, in my high school or even college. Uh, I come from a, a district uh, town called Dharwad in uh, North Karnataka. And I had my early education there in, in uh, Dharwad uh, till uh, till the graduate degree, uh, B.Sc. in uh, physics. Uh, those days, I don't think I ever thought of any career related to space. Uh, I had general interest in space even then. Uh, that's because of the uh, large number of uh, lovely uh, brochures which were being sent by uh, USIS office in Chennai those days uh, related to NASA missions. And that was the only thing that used to excite us that there's something going on uh, with respect to space technology. But uh, I don't think I ever had any uh, thought that I will have a career in uh, space-related activities. Uh, although I had opportunities to uh, join any engineering colleges, for example, the Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore, after my graduation, before that, the University Department of uh, Chemical Technology at Bombay, but I didn't do. I went over to the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, at Pawai, uh, for doing a postgraduate degree in physics, MSc physics. And uh, that's it. And after that, of course, we I again went over to uh, Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Bombay itself. I joined in 1970. And I spent about uh, six and a half years, seven years there obtaining my PhD. Now, after obtaining my PhD in physics, still I didn't have anything to do or any inkling of uh, space because by generally, uh, most of us who do PhDs in physics from Tata Institute of Fundamental Research go abroad for a postdoctoral fellowship. So I also had an opportunity to go over to 
Notre Dame University in Indiana, US. I had also an opportunity to go over to some uh, academic institution in India to have a teaching job. But at the same time, I had uh, this uh, application coming from Space Application Center. I had not sent. They had sent me a form to fill up if I am interested. Uh, what happened was that I went to the US consulate in Bombay uh, to get the visa to go to uh, US uh, as an exchange visitor visa, they called. And the lady there, after talking to me, said, look, uh, you are a very potential immigrant. So I will not uh, immediately approve your visa. So I will have to get a, uh, some kind of a uh, understanding from you that you will come back and maybe TIFR will give you a certificate or a letter saying that they will absorb you after you come back. I said, fine. So I waited for that. But in the meantime, uh, this interview at the Space Application Center, I went over. And, uh, you know, I, it, it was a very small, it was an institution which was only four or five years old. And uh, so I had no idea. But I knew there is something to do with remote sensing. So from my uh, TIFR library, I took up a, uh, a book which was on remote sensing, brought out by National Academy of Sciences of US and just had some reading of that. The only thing that I understood was that uh, you can identify and discriminate uh, Earth's surface features uh, if you use the observations in different spectral bands. And if two objects uh, look same in some four or five bands, then go for the sixth. This was what I had read or understood from that book. And so I went to the interview and you know, uh, Professor Eshpal who was originally in TIFR, was, either, was the founder director of SAC and he was there with others. So perhaps they liked that I did do some efforts to understand what they are doing. So they selected me. Uh, by then, of course, the US uh, consulate also had sent me the uh, approval for the visa, but then that's it, I got stuck and I remained at the, I joined the Space Application Center. So that is how I joined the Space Application Center at Ahmedabad or, uh, you know, it's a, which is a major center of ISRO. And this is just by accident. So my uh, getting into the space activities uh, is not in that sense any great plan, but by, you know, by the fact that uh, probably US consulate did push me into that direction uh, by uh, first refusing uh, to entertain. So I think this is the, <laughs> this is the circumstances when uh, by, you know, I joined uh, the Space Application Center uh, at uh, Ahmedabad. I think uh, this should uh, give you a proper background of my joining uh, the Space Application Center. And you know, uh, when you do uh, your postgraduate degree, PhD, et cetera, you're already uh, closer to 30. So you, you, you need to settle down also, so you can't, uh, think of, uh, although in the initial stages at SAC, I was not very comfortable because, you know, uh, although Space Application Center has many, uh, you know, many uh, groups, there are people who are engaged in the development of electro-optical sensors, like uh, led by Dr. George Joseph. There was a group uh, led by Mr. Kalla who was doing microwave-related sensors and development. There were other people who were uh, developing uh, satellite uh, communication transponders. So there was a large number of hardware groups, earth station groups were all there. But there was uh, also a data processing group uh, led by Mr. Kamath. 
But the, the, the group to which I was put uh, was the one which was related to more use of data, which comes from remote sensing or satellites. How to use it, uh, the more towards the applications of this. So that wasn't uh, uh, blue sky physics. I mean, it was not that. So I was a bit uh, uh, uncomfortable to start with. Uh, and this group had people you know, of different backgrounds. There were some which, who were uh, agriculture scientists. There were some who were uh, coming from geology background. There were some from plant physiology. There were some geography people. I mean, it, it was a mix of all multidisciplinary team. So I felt a little out of place to start with. But then uh, what happened was, you know, you, as I mentioned to you, you are at, a, at an age where uh, your choices, uh, you, keep, you cannot keep on hopping from one to the other. So I got stuck. I think that is how my journey uh, in the space application center uh, began. Then of course I started taking interest. And at that time, the space application center, although was very young, but the number of activities that it was taking up were very exciting. One of the activities was uh, CO. That time it was called SEO. That is a satellite for earth observation. Uh, this was an experimental satellite which was being built, uh, camera, one camera, video, Vidicon camera and one microwave radiometer were built uh, by SAC. And this was to be launched by the Russians. And uh, so uh, there was a lot of activity towards the investment of, uh, to the pre-investment of how do we use this data which is going to come from this satellite. And parallelly, uh, there was also another major uh, program which was started by Professor Satish Dhawan at that time, that we should embark upon a full-fledged Indian remote sensing program. It was IRS. So that was the activity. There were a large number of activities towards that as well. So these were two activities which uh, kept uh, me very active. Since I had a slightly broader perspective than, you know, uh, nothing to, uh, not, no, no reflection on anybody, my other colleagues uh, who were probably had only a narrower uh, background of a particular discipline, whereas I was not belonging to any of those disciplines. So I had a larger perspective of these things. So Professor Dhawan was saying that maybe we will build satellites, maybe we will build uh, earth stations, but what will happen to the data which comes? Unless this data is used by the stakeholders, users in the country, this cannot uh, be the ultimate aim of only technology development. So he was very much interested in ensuring that there is a large infrastructure in the country which uses the data and that too for purposes which are required by the country. So that is how I got very much involved in the so-called IRS utilization program. There are two important things that were there at that time. This was in 1979, just two years after I joined. One was called the Joint Experiments Program. What was it? It was an experiment which you have to do with users on what they want, whether it is agriculture, drinking water, watershed or fisheries, and show to them that this data from remote sensing is actually useful from end to end. And if you want to do that thing, what kind of a satellite data is required? 
So these were the experiments which we were doing. The second was actually called end-to-end -end experiments. So right from the data which is received from the satellite to the end, to the final use of that data on the ground, you have to demonstrate. So these were the experiments for which I was the convener, some of those experiments. So this is what brought me into the main frame of utilization program. And uh, all these experiments which we did, we also used them to define what kind of a satellite do we require. See, already Landsat was there. Landsat data was available. But is that what satisfies us? Or is it something different from Landsat that we should have for our IRS utilization, IRS program? So these were the questions for which you have to see what kind of spectral band should be there, what kind of resolution should be there, spatial resolution. So all these aspects, uh, what kind of radiometry should be there? How should the data be there? So all these questions were very exciting as far as I was concerned. So all these things which were happening with respect to the joint experiments program, end-to-end -end experiments, et cetera, getting hold of users, all these things led to a major national conference. And that is called the National Natural Resources Management System Conference. That was held in 1983. And many secretaries to government of India Secretary Agriculture, Secretary Water Resources, Rural Development, Science and Technology, were all there along with Professor M.G.K. Menon, who I think was in uh, either Vice Chairman Planning Commission or something, along with Professor Dhawan. So all these people were there. That means there was some tacit understanding that the final stakeholders of this data are going to be using this data. That's why we are doing this program. So on the basis of this, that uh, planning commission was finally uh, given the responsibility to have this NNRMS. So NNRMS was set up under the planning commission. At the same time, Professor Dhawan saw to it that there are some standing committees. What are the standing committees? Standing committee, each is chaired by the secretary of a particular user ministry, secretary agriculture, for example in the uh, committee on agriculture. So what it means is, and there are people from states, there are people from space department, there are people from others, et cetera. All of them together will decide what kind of applications will you do with this data, which is likely to be available and you will work for it. So there was a commitment from the central government people on using this data. This was a very exciting thing. As far as I think this was, uh, uh, this, this I must give credit to Professor Dhawan's complete vision uh, because remote sensing cannot be a technology by itself that uh, ultimately it has to be useful and not just useful, it has to be used by the stakeholders on the ground. Even if not today, tomorrow, you know, that was the spirit of those things. And uh, apart from the two, experimental satellites, Bhaskara 1 and Bhaskara 2, there were no other satellites still launched. There was no IRS satellite. This was all happened in 1980s, mid, I mean, up to mid 80s or so. So, and then one very important thought came to all people. You know, India is a federal country. Resources belong to states, not to the central government. If you know, for example, agriculture, forestry, 
forest belongs to the forest which is in karnataka belongs to karnataka forest which is in madhya pradesh belongs to madhya pradesh so most all natural resources except for the uh, you know water which is an inter river interstate uh, issue all resources belong to the states so unless you get the states involved there are so many states now of course there are 29 or 27 states and union territories involved in this process of establishing uh, infrastructure for the utilization of data this will not work so there was another important thing that was given to us and i was one of the you know person who was very much involved in this that states should establish a small state remote sensing centers in which they will have people their own resource people and they must take up the utilization of this data for their states so this concept of planning commission standing committees and nrms state remote sensing centers and the isro centers so this became a, a cluster of all organization in addition to of course there may be other small industries and uh, other users etc where to take forward when and whenever we get the data from our own satellites to take it forward for the end use so this aspect of uh, you know the actual evolution of remote sensing in the country and all this i must say before any indian remote sensing satellite worth its name was launched and that was launched only in 1988 uh, you know on march 17 and i must tell you on this particular occasion uh, march 17 happened to be my birthday and uh, so uh, in 1988 i was 40 on march 17 so everybody was so happy and i was so pleased that i am actually here uh in not in for the remote sensing itself because you know it coincides uh, with my birthday also this is the background uh, to my work but along with that of course i was very much involved uh in um, definition of the satellite uh, you know what kind of spectral band should be there should they be blue green red infrared but you know already you had some experience with landsat data but you wanted to make sure that you just don't copy landsat mss but there were some issues with landsat mss there was some oxygen absorption feature was there there was some other problems with those things so we avoided all those things and got into the definition of these sensors as well and uh, we also said that let there not be only a, a one camera but let there be two cameras uh, basically uh, defining two resolutions 72 uh, meter resolution as well as 36 meter resolution so all this uh was happened much before 1988 i hope this is the background uh, which you is enough yeah i mean that provides an excellent uh, foundation for uh, for our conversation further you talked about how they were you know just a four or five year history of um, you know sack when you joined what was the environment like when you joined you know what was the vibe because india did not have any launch vehicles india did not have any like satellites or anything like that i guess you were using a lot of the landsat data uh, to do a lot of the work so talk uh, talk a little bit about you know how was yeah. the environment during the time we you joined and how it evolved 
See, uh, one of the things is that uh, SAC uh, uh, actually, although it is called Space Application Center, uh, but you know, uh, it is basically a, a technology center. Uh, the environment, as I said, in, uh, in SAC, there were major, major groups, which were essentially developing microwave components, microwave sensors, uh, you know, which are uh, micro radiometer, et cetera. There was a group which was in um, earth stations uh, for geosynchronous satellites. Uh, that was also providing training to a large number of people from other countries on earth station reception and all that for communication satellites. There were electro-optical sensors development uh, using uh, you know, optics uh, detectors and all that kind of things. There was a data processing group which was extremely involved in you know what kind of corrections which you need to do for data so it was basically a technology organization but founder director always felt that this has to be driven by the people who actually use the data that is where we as the applications group so i would say space application center environment is the most ideal environment for anybody to interact with all these groups and get to know. That is why you get a much more rounded knowledge in the space application center. If you go only to somebody who is only using the data, that will not do because that kind of a work, then he will not be able to understand why a sensor person is saying so that this is possible, but that is not possible, etc. So the environment of the space application center was one technology plus all the so-called software plus the applications and stakeholders. Plus you also know that SAC had the heritage of a, a site experiment, that is satellite instructional television experiment, which was done by uh, Professor, uh, I mean, which was started by Vikram Sarabhai, but later on took up by Professor Chitnis and Professor uh, Eshpal, which beamed uh, educational material to uh, many villages in six districts of India. And uh, you had to do a lot of uh, content development, do social research, what kind of programs are required by people in those uh, tribal villages, et cetera. So there is a social context and that, you know, is called the DECO, Development Education and Communication Unit. So there is a full, full, uh, uh, full gamut of activities in SAC. So I would say if anybody wants to, uh, you know, uh, get into any of these space technology related things. Uh, SAC is in that sense an ideal and many times people used to compare that SAC is more like the JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, so that was, the, so environment was very good. But as I said, for me, initially, I mean, if you ask me from my background that I had in physics and the PhD that I had done, uh, I could have gone into any of these groups, but it so happened that I got into a, an area uh, which was more of a user or a more of a uh, analysis of data for applications. But I don't regret it because I think that gave me a, a very different perspective. So, and Dr. George Joseph and his team was working on the development of these cameras, list cameras at that time. And uh, those list cameras um, were, were not like uh, the Landsat multispectral scanners, because as you know, in multi multispectral scanner, MSS, uh, 
or even the thematic mapper. There's an oscillating mirror, uh, basically mechanical uh, thing. And then you get, uh, uh, as the satellite moves, you get the images. Whereas by then, um, uh, technology, uh, we had these uh, linear imaging sensors, you know, charge coupled devices. So George Joseph at that time and Dr. Kasturangan thought that we should have these things, although uh, that avoids the probability of failure of mechanical systems. That was one of the things, but uh, it also uh, has another advantage. You don't have to worry because when in an oscillating mirror, when you go to the edges, the pixels become uh, you know, bigger than the nadir looking, whereas in list, all of them will be safe. So in terms of processing also, it becomes uh, easier. So uh, this list cameras were built and we were involved in, you know, in uh, seeing that the specifications, what should be the saturation radians? Because, you know, these are some technical things, but I must explain that major application for all of our earlier remote sensing programs was agriculture. So if you want the cameras to work, for agricultural applications, that means the radiance that they should saturate or the gain settings should also satisfy what is the albedo of crops or vegetation and not snow. If you design something for snow, then it is 100% or 95%. So what happens? Uh, the data with respect to crops uh, gets confined to very small regions. So you don't, you are not able to discriminate within crops so much. So, you know, these are the intricacies which we were involved to tell that uh, this is, of course, this was all because uh, we were using Landsat data, et cetera. But I must say one more thing here, you know, Landsat, we were receiving at Hyderabad National Remote Sensing Agency then, uh, it used to cost 2000 US dollars for one CCT. And one CCT, computer compatible tape covers 185 by 185 kilometers. If you wanted to do an exercise for India with a, such a large number of scenes which are required, that to multiple times during the year, you imagine the cost of the data itself. We used to have a problem even getting a few of them to do demonstration experiments, to get familiar with those things, etc. So I think it was worthwhile uh, that we had to go for the Indian remote sensing satellite program, our own program, our own satellites, our own specifications, bands, etc. So that was most satisfying. So I think that was a uh, situation at that time. Uh, one more thing I must tell uh, at this point, because, you know, during that time, Professor U.R. Rao, by then Professor Satish Dhaban had uh, retired, and Professor U.R. Rao was the chairman of the Indian Space Research Organization. And he was very keen that uh, we must do uh, national crop production forecasting. That essentially meant for the entire country, you must tell how much do, are we producing, how much wheat are we producing, how much paddy you are producing, etc. And um, we have not even launched the satellite <laughs> that was being launched in 88. And uh, I I somehow was the leader of this particular team, which was supposed to get into these things. So I used to, he used to call, you know, he would not worry about uh, hierarchy. So he would just call to his uh, chambers at Kaviri Bhavan in Bangalore. So he'd sit across his table and I used to tell him, sir, 
uh, in India, 60% of agriculture production comes from uh, June to September, which is uh, cloud covered. So electro-optical, optical data is not at all available. And in India, the field sizes are small, unlike in US. So this 80 meter resolution or 72 meter resolution will not allow me to do that. You require at least once in five days, the data, not 22 days like IRS was being proposed, etc. So, you know, this I, even now I remember uh, my colleagues also, I tell them, Professor Rao would say, look, you don't tell me what, why it cannot be done. You tell me how it can be done. And as time progresses, we'll build everything that you are saying that we need to build. We need to build microwave sensors, SAR, okay. You, we need to have satellites which give you data every five days, okay. But don't tell me right now that you have all these problems. You start doing, you make a plan, program. So this is something which I feel is a, you know, uh, is a visionary approach which he adopted. Uh, so I, I would say that most of the things, uh, most of the particularly uh, the name that India made in the remote sensing applications program and uh, the total program being a very model to many countries is because of uh, uh, Professor Rao at that time. That was very, very uh, inspiring to uh, particularly our group at the Space Application Center. Yeah, please. So you are, uh, let's say, not an agriculturist and such, you know, you are- No, not at all, not at all. You know, see, since you asked me that question, sometime in 1991, Dr. Uh, Professor U.R. Rao got a letter saying that they are looking for a person uh, who, who could be the Director General of the Indian Council of Agricultural Research. And uh, he telephoned me and said, uh, Naval Gund, I want to send you a nomination. I said, sir, I'm not an agriculture scientist. I'm a physicist <laughs> as, as thoroughbred as anybody from TIFR, which is an elite institution in the country. So he laughed. He, I, he said, I know you are, you are a physicist, as, as good a physicist as, as he was. But I thought with your experience, you would be a better uh, DG uh, ICMR. But any, I see uh, uh, the Indian Council of Agriculture is ICAR. But anyway, he listened to me and he didn't disturb me further. But this is true. Yes. Yeah, please. No, I asked that because, um, you know, there is two separate islands of uh, knowledge that you have to bring together to drive end user application. You have yeah. to, let's say, know what is the realities of agriculture, like you beautifully talked about, you know, the size of lands being small in India, you know, the so many realities of Indian agriculture, which are so unique to India against any other country in the world. And you also have to know what it means to connect it to space technology and, you know, satellite uh, design and payload design for remote sensing and so on. So yeah. uh, how is this, you know, culture being built up in ISRO at, you know, during your time where, where you have to go learn about agriculture and how the end user behaves in India and how it, the capacity can be built up in the end user. Yeah, in fact, we we have had very close interactions with many agriculture universities as well as Indian Agriculture Research Institute at Pusa campus. First, in fact, we were doing ground experiments. You know, actually growing, let's say, a crop like like let's say wheat, and in let's say hundred hundreds of plots in a farm, 
each of them you give different type of different uh, amount of fertilizers irrigate them differently and measure what is their spectral response in those bands which we are likely to put on the satellites from the ground and at what stage can you distinguish a crop from the other crop that is one thing second is a crop which is has more fertilizer compared to the other fer less fertilizer or the one which has been irrigated the one which has not been irrigated that means it is having water stress how do they differ differ in their spectral responses and whether you can catch that is good enough to be caught by the sensor on the satellite so this kind of experiment simulations actually on the ground we i was particularly engaged with all my colleagues of course the team was multidisciplinary as i said there were some people from agriculture background there were some from physics somewhere who were plant physiology who know who knew what the yield would be so on the basis of these things we said that we must have very high radiometric resolution that is at least 10 bits you know in the initial stages most of the satellites even landsat or our irs 1a1b used to have only 6 bits or 7 bits radiometric resolution but later on we got into 10 bits radiometric resolution but just increasing the bits does not mean that uh, you will get it you know consistent with radiometric resolutions you must also have the sensitivity of the instruments to make small differences measurable so you need to have better optics you need to have uh, many of the uh, fast electronics because the data volume increases then we said uh, this 22 days once a satellite comes and uh, again it comes after another 22 days if that 22nd day is a cloud cover day then you get once in 44 days and if you have the crop total cover uh, the calendar is 120 days so within 120 days if you get only two data sets it's very difficult to discriminate crops and find out what is the yield so you know just like you are uh, sampling frequencies in engineering so we need to have every 5 days so we kept on saying that we every 5 days you must have a image and i said you must have 10 bit radiometric resolution you must have much better spatial resolution of the order of 20 meters or better so these things basically forced or i will not say forced but this was a kind of a feedback mechanism then the uh, sensor people will say we will design of course we need to build better optics we need to have better detectors so that's how you know irs 1c came into being so 1a 1b did a lot of work but that was not good enough that was not enough so we went into irs 1c so that is where you know we got into uh, short wave infrared that because the only data in the short wave infrared can discriminate between one which is stressed because of water and the one which is not stressed because of water that you could not do earlier in irs 1a 1b so we said we must introduce short wave infrared we we also said that we must have every five days that's why they brought in wide field sensor you know this is a trade off in all satellite designs there is a trade off if you increase the swath then you get higher repetitivity but if you increase the swath you get higher repetitivity but your resolution spatial resolution becomes coarse so we had 188 meters so i said no 188 meters we don't want we want much better about 50 meters then we also said that you see wide field sensor also should have short wave infrared 
that they didn't have because that time detectors were not available for that kind of a thing. They were also expensive. So uh, IRSC 1C was, a, was in that direction of meeting the actual user requirements. This is as far as agriculture is concerned. For, for example, urban applications, you can't do with 20 meters even. You need much better resolutions. So that is how this 5.8 meter resolution uh, came about, the panchromatic camera, which was there on IRS-1C. But do you know, this also is because of Professor U.R. Rao. Professor U.R. Rao said, don't tell me about spot 10 meter resolution. We must be better than them. At that time, spot had 10 meter resolution, uh, panchromatic and 20 meter multispectral. That was one of the considered the best at that uh, in 90s, et cetera. So Professor Rao said, no, we must be better than that. That is how uh, this group developed the 5.8 meter uh, panchromatic camera. And that became an extremely important um, uh, camera. At that time in 1995, when it was launched, um, that was the highest uh, civilian resolution, uh, spatial resolution, civilian spatial resolution satellite. So that was extremely good. Uh, so these, uh, you know, the definition of the specifications broadly, not everything they could do. I, I also, you know, I was always, uh, we were never happy in the sense that you, they gave, they gave us something, but we said, no, th this is not good enough. So that is how that wide field sensor, which was a two band, two band means only red and near infrared and 188 meter resolution and five day repetitivity. I said, that will not do. That is how uh, Dr. George Joseph said, no, I will, we will get into this one. So that is how advanced wide field sensor was built. And this advanced wide field sensor was uh, 56 meter resolution and five day repetitivity and 10, uh, 10 bit radiometric resolution and four spectral bands, not two. And that was launched, of course it takes time. And that was launched only in 2003. Uh, but, you know, coincidentally, by that time, US, United States Landsat program had uh, failure. I think Landsat 6, I'm not very sure. I think Landsat 6 was a failure and they did not have any satellite at that moment uh, because US, one of the major experiments they do is what is called as foreign crop condition assessment. US monitors the crops, agricultural crops of the entire globe regularly. And uh, this would this was not possible. So they they set up an station to receive IRS P6. That was uh, the one launched in uh, 2003. They started receiving uh, the data, AVIPS data, and they did most of the foreign crop condition assessment and many of their programs with this AVIPS data. So that became an extremely good sensor for global crop condition assessment and. Uh, what happens when you get every five days and you know you, you imagine 120 days every five day you get it so you get a very large number you know 24 of them 24 points you get and this is something like a distribution curve you know because the plant grows so you get uh, uh, an increase in the ratio uh, ndvi near, near infrared to red or any of those devices and then it starts decreasing but you know for us being a you know we are we are also analytical we are physicists when it uh, the what when the curve increases and when the curve starts on the other side after let's say 60 days or etc 
if it goes very fast, steeply, that means the yield is likely to be less. That means it is maturing very fast. But if it matures slowly, the grain yield becomes more. So when you get a growth profile complete, then you get many parameters. One is the entire area under the curve, maximum peak, full width at half maximum, the slope while it is decreasing. All such things are useful in finally making a model for yield using remotely sensed data. So all these things you know, come from the combination of people who have physics, analytical background, and agriculture who understand. So all these things were developed by uh, basically our group at the Space Application Center. And eventually, uh, you know, I, I must tell you one more, one more uh, interesting thing. From 1985-86, when Professor Rao started meeting Secretary of Agriculture, uh, till 2012 when I retired, I must have met at least 22, 23 Secretaries of Agriculture to Government of India and made presentations to tell them that, look, this is a very useful thing for the country to know what is the production that is likely to be there because that will help you to make decisions on uh, whether to import, export, how many wagons are required, what should be the minimum support price. I mean, uh, number of policy decisions, et cetera. So you please set up your own institute. We are an R&D organization. We cannot keep on doing it for the country. Our job is to develop tools and techniques. So I tell you every time, including Mr. Sharad Pawar, when he was the agriculture minister, I have made the presentation. Uh, I mean, I, I, we were never tired. I mean, we kept on doing it. And I must be very happy to tell you uh, that uh, in 2012, when I retired by then, at that time, this uh, the very important institution that the Mahal Nobis National Crop Forecasting Center was established by the Ministry of Agriculture at their Pusa campus, IRI New Delhi. And then of course they said, okay, we will do this. We will start doing ourselves, but you send your person on deputation to be uh, the director here. So I nominated a young man who is doing extremely well. And uh, more recently now, you know, when uh, there is this uh, Fasal Bima Yojana, the prime minister's very pet project, when uh, uh, you have to give money uh, to the farmers, depending upon how much crop loss is there, insurance, etc. Uh, this satellite data is extremely useful. Uh, I was, I'm amazed at the kind of work that he's doing, which I never thought at that time moment. You know, I will give you some examples. Some uh, farmers, or I mean, I, I don't want to name any persons. Some farmers, let's say, put 100 hectares, they say, while putting insurance, uh, that he's going to grow a crop A. But actually what he does is only on 50 hectares, he might uh, sow. And later on, once the season is over, harvesting is over, etc., then the total production obviously is less. Though uh, then he will say, uh, I mean, you give me for the entire thing. So you look at the images of the previous season and see, look, you didn't even sow. How are you eligible to get that much money? Or for example, you are supposed to grow crop A, but he has grown crop B, that is also a violation. Of course, most of the people would think that if uh, crop is supposed to give 100% yield or some, let's say two tons per hectare, and it has given you only one ton because of drought, et cetera, then uh, he's, he has to be compensated, or if it is 75%. So 
So all such issues which are there today are being actually looked at, examined by this center, this Mahal Nobis National Crop Focus Center. Of course, the word Mahal Nobis is because, uh, you know, Mahal Nobis was a great uh, statistician, scientist of India who introduced crop uh, statistics in this country in, uh, I think, long, many years ago when uh, Britishers were there, even at that time. So that is how it is uh, in his name. So I'm extremely happy uh, because what we started in, um, 70, I joined in 77, but more or less the work started from almost scratch from those years uh, to today. Uh, I think it has taken a full circle in ensuring that remotely sensed data from our satellites is used for an extremely important purpose on the ground, which is useful for society. And like this, there are many, I mean, uh, there is for glaciers, it is there, for forest enumeration, it is there, for coastal zone is there, for fisheries, for example. I must tell you about fisheries. You know, fisheries work also started uh, way back in 1980s, mid uh, early 80s. At that time, only sea surface temperature, which we were not measuring, but it was available from uh, NOAA satellites, the US uh, satellites. Uh, you could distinguish the temperature, sea surface temperatures between two regions, and the fish had a probability of uh, aggregating at a particular specific temperature ridge or something like that. So it started from that. Later on, we had an uh, we had a satellite uh, for ocean color. Uh, that was in 1999. Ocean color actually measures the ocean color. But the ocean color measurement actually means the phytoplanktons, the unicellular plants. Now, these actually are like plants. You know, they absorb blue and red radiation. They reflect uh, green and infrared radiation. But this is so small uh, from the sea surface. It's only two, three to four percent, four to five percent. By the time it reaches the sensor, 100 percent, 95 percent comes from the atmosphere. So you require first very sensitive instruments. Second, you require an ability to subtract the contribution from the atmosphere. Then you say so much phytoplankton or so much chlorophyll content is there in the oceanic waters. Then you know that that is a food for herbivorous fish. And herbivorous fish are again food for uh, carnivorous fish, etc. So by identifying these phytoplankton from the satellite data, by measuring the sea surface temperatures, by also looking at winds and currents, you are able to make that these are the areas where fishery is likely to be more probability than other places. This has been an extremely popular application with the fishermen. And uh, we used to send this, translate it into a vernacular language and fax that information within three, four hours of the receipt of the satellite data to their fishing harbors. They will look at it and go. So they will uh, basically save uh, diesel because they don't have to keep uh, looking for places. Second, they used to get higher catch. So this fishery is another very important application which is uh, by India. And uh, this has been acclaimed. And uh, this is then we have uh, slightly better ocean color instrument later on. We had in 2000, uh, late 2009 or 11 or so. And uh, 
of course uh, we there was a there is a uh, there is another argument also uh, fishermen will say that you give us these forecasts uh, all 12 months and obviously we said uh, no it is not possible because during the um, uh, cloudy seasons uh, since optical data is not available it is not possible to give you but it also coincides with the breeding fish breeding and uh, if you give the if you get those charts during that time juvenile fish will get killed and the sustainability gets a problem so it, in a sense it was a very useful thing for us to make sure that it is available only during the other times etc and uh, if i'm not mistaken um, uh, indian uh, institute of applied economic research in new delhi has come up uh, they have done uh, cost benefit aspects of this uh, particularly for fisheries and uh, they have come up with a number like 50000 crores benefit to the country because of this single application of fisheries uh, you i mean no you can you, after all how much a satellite uh, costs including its launch uh, maybe um, uh, about 1000 crores uh, if you talk about 200 to 300 crores of a satellite and maybe another i don't know now 3 400 crores of a launch plus uh, ground station receiving and all that so you know it's a very uh, very beneficial uh, application so i think the major point that i want to say is the feedback from the applications the actual usefulness how do they translate in terms of actual specification in terms of parameters gets back into the uh, you know the people who develop these sensors put them in the satellites uh, has been the main uh, main force of trust and i have been very much excited uh, for, for for these things of my for, for my contributions in uh, isro I, mean, i i i just said about of course uh, these fisheries and these things but i had uh, equally uh, role in uh, related to atmosphere clouds and uh, you know even imd was skeptical initially about satellite products but today if you see um, particularly in case of um, cyclones uh in uh, in 1999 when uh, the super cyclone hit orissa coast i i don't remember but i think 40000 people or so died but uh, uh, over the years the cyclone track prediction and landfall point have improved considerably because of the inputs coming from satellites which tell you where the genesis of the cyclone is what are the what is the direction in it which is likely to move that is of course again a modeling efforts are there what are the wind speeds which it will have so within third, plus or minus 30 40 kilometers when you come and also 24 hours 48 hours much before it is going to have a landfall point you are giving this track and that itself today even a bigger super cyclone has hit in 2013 and very recently the number of casualties is very less so the uh, remote sensing satellites whether in uh, ocean land or atmosphere all three uh, to which uh, we made uh, contributions have have helped uh, tremendously in fact we also built a scatterometer a scatterometer uh, you know measures basically uh, when you send a pulse to the ocean surface and you get back the scattered signal from the ocean surface if the ocean surface is absolutely plain uh, 
high school physics, uh, you know, Snell's law, uh, you get zero signal back from that to the satellite. But if there are ripples, if there are capillary waves on the sea surface, then you get a scattered signal. And that scattered signal, if you measure and uh, inverse it, you get the wind speed. Okay, because capillary waves or all these things are produced by the wind over the oceans. So thereby you are able to measure sea surface winds. So from this catometer wind surface measurements globally. And there was a time uh, in, uh, in about 10, 12 years back when uh, one of the scatterometers which was developed by NASA, uh, NASA failed, QuickSat. Uh, it was only the Indian scatterometer which we called OSCAT, were the one which was providing uh, wind vectors over the entire uh, globe oceans. Now we have a three, I think, three scatterometers. So they are giving. Uh, another very important thing was the one point which I want to tell you about applications, which I initially said is related to this uh, use of microwaves. You know, uh, I always said that Indian agriculture is 60% comes from Kharif season. So we need a synthetic aperture radar. But, uh, you know, the technology was probably uh, was not uh, adequate at earlier times. But we never said, uh, we, we, we never, uh, you know, uh, we, we never said that we will not use data from other satellites. So right from 19, mid 80s, there were a shuttle uh, radars. There were some shut, uh, radars which were flown on shuttles, so which we used those things. We were familiar with those things. Later on, um, ESA, in European Space Agency, flew a satellite uh, in which there was a synthetic aperture radar. Then there was a Canadian radar set, one and two. So we, we as the uh, end users or the application scientists, we were familiar with how to use microwave data. It, so we kept on telling that, look, uh, don't worry about when you build a microwave uh, synthetic aperture radar, that who will be using it? We are all very familiar with you. And we had already trained all of our users in state remote sensing centers and many of the users, et cetera. So by, finally, when uh, you know India launched its own synthetic aperture radar uh, satellite, RISAT in 2012, that data would, could be immediately used by all the people who were, uh, who were supposed to have been using these things, et cetera. So uh, I have never uh, hesitated in equipping ourselves or my colleagues in using the data from whatever sources it is available. So that you are prepared when we have our own satellites of that kind, you are able to use them without much uh, time lag in those things. You are familiar already. So this is something which also I, I think is a, it's an important lesson. You know, sometimes because of uh, constraints, uh, non-availability non of technology, non-availability of components, uh, and also because of embargoes that you have, you are not able to match sometimes the kind of um, uh, sophisticated instruments or uh, measurements which uh, are required the country. But that should not deter us from, um, you know, not using or not being prepared if and when the data becomes available. So I, I personally feel that uh, that has stood in good stead for most of us. I mean,
I hope I uh, conveyed the, what I wanted to convey <laughs> to you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting aspects that uh, you know you didn't touch upon, which might be interesting to talk about, is uh, this embargo and you know the level of hardware that you actually need to realize uh, many complicated cameras. And you know, ISRO I think does a very good job of let's say designing cameras or integrating them, but you need to depend on a lot of the semiconductor industry. You need to depend on a lot of the sensor industry. Uh, which you know comes together to make these cameras possible, right? So you have to then look at, and many of these industries are not in India. You know, you don't have um, a very good sensor uh, camera sensor production company in India. You have to depend on many other export, uh, sub, you know, suppliers from abroad for getting all of these kinds of uh, critical equipment to realize some of these cameras. So what has been your experience, let's say from the end of 70s to, you know, until now with respect to some of these constraints and how they were overcome? See, uh, I, I must admit, uh, although I my background is uh, physics and I have had some knowledge of uh, hardware related aspects, but I did not actually work on any of the hardware so like some of my colleagues, as I mentioned, Dr. George Joseph or Kiran Kumar and those people. But obviously, as far as electro-optical sensors are concerned, there are three important things. One is the you know uh, optics of high size, you know higher aperture, uh, large aperture optics with the kind of surface accuracies that you require when you want to go into very high spatial resolutions, etc. You know, uh, uh, 5.8 meter is okay, but from around 5.8 meter, you want to go to one meter or even a fraction of a meter, then you require uh, much higher aperture optics uh, with the kind of surface accuracies that you require. That is one thing. Second is you require detectors, which are, uh, you know, very sensitive. Uh, that time uh, TDIs, you know, uh, time delay integrated devices, etc. And then you also require uh, fast electronics because the data volume becomes large, then you require uh, data transmission, etc. So there were, of course, issues related to all these things. For example, we uh, probably uh, um, my other colleagues would know better. We did not have access to either uh, the TDI devices earlier, nor did we have uh, all the components that were required, uh, this one. And uh, although there were efforts made in the country to build uh, optics, you know, there has been a very uh, extremely large infrastructure built at uh, Bangalore uh, in, in our uh, central EOS, where uh, we are now, I think, making even one meter kind of aperture uh, with the kind of surface accuracy that is required. Otherwise, we, we could not have done uh, Cartosat 3, which is 30 centimeter uh, resolution. But uh, during the late 90s, uh, 90s and the beginning of 2000, yes, we did have uh, some of the difficulties that you, uh, you just mentioned. But uh, uh, some ingenuity was used in overcoming these things. Uh, uh, you may recall that uh, you you recall or I mentioned to you that 5.8 meter panchromatic camera, but the same camera system was used to provide to get one meter resolution uh, in uh, 2001 uh, in a satellite called the TES Technology Experimental Satellite. It was an experimental satellite, but this was done using a technique called step and stare. What it actually meant was, I mean, no, I was not involved in this, but uh, what it meant was that uh, as the sp uh, spacecraft is moving, uh, 
uh, as that camera or the optics uh, step, take one step and stay at the same point for this one so that you integrate that uh, signals and resolution becomes better in that. That is how 5.8 meter was brought to one meter resolution. Of course, there are possibilities that uh, there might be some degradation of some MTF or some of the things is possible, but the spirit was to get it. So uh, some of these uh, techniques have been employed in order to overcome some of the difficulties which we had earlier. That is how uh, the so-called high resolution after 5.8 meter, uh, you know, a host of high resolution satellites uh, from Iconos 1999 or 98, I don't recollect, uh, digital camera. I mean, many of them have come up after that. Uh, but by the time um, uh, we got into high resolution was probably in 2005, we had a Cartosat 1, which was a stereoscopic 2.5 meter resolution. Then I think at that time, 70 centimeter aperture optics was built. And later on, Cartosat 2 uh, was done, uh, which is a one meter resolution. Of course, these are panchromatic. Later on, of course, the multispectral was also added to that thing. So yes, there were periods in which there, was, uh, there were difficulties. Uh, during that time, of course, one has taken recourse to uh, uh, doing some immunity in uh, designs. But I think after that, now, uh, in the last uh, maybe a few years, some of the, all these devices, et cetera, are become available. And our own uh, institution at Semiconductor Laboratory at uh, Chandigarh, Mohali, they are also making CCDs and other things, et cetera. But overall, uh, in the area of uh, these uh, detectors and devices, maybe, maybe I think, uh, not me alone, but India could have taken a much better, um, much better efforts right from the beginning. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. We could have done uh, much better if we had probably put more emphasis on those things. That is true. For example, even microwave SAR, you know, uh, it required devices, this uh, receiver and transmitter modules to make. We had to get the gallium arsenide uh, devices uh, qualified, etc. So I personally myself had gone to uh, what is that institution called JTEC in um, Hyderabad. Uh, so, you know, people, only when there, are, there is enough demand uh, and importance given, the other institutions also uh, rise up to the challenges. Uh, you know, uh, otherwise they will also be doing some research. So it's a, it's a mix of both things. You know, you also have to make demands on institutions Institutions will, you know, to challenges, then they will say, I need this, I need that. Then, of course, the government has to be convinced and you get funding. So, uh, the process, I think, is still on. I mean, uh, you know, it, now you have so many other things coming up. Uh, so, but, you know, detectors is also another thing as very important. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Right. And one of the challenges here is um, how do you convince end users to trust what you deliver? And because, you know, at the end of the day, end user communities in agriculture, fisheries, whatever it is, X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. there is a, 
let's say they know the problem and they see the reality of that problem on a daily basis but when you as somebody who is coming with technology to solve that problem there can be you know mistrust or they may be also that they see you as an outsider to that community and you know you're coming up with maybe unreasonable aspects that they may think of uh, that this is not maybe for us because it may not work in scale or it may not be useful on a daily basis or whatever it is they may be such uh, uh, let's say uh, you know kind of a hindsight uh, to to their judgment of what you are trying to provide have you seen such uh, experiences in trying to go build capacity in end user institutions yeah. in india and how maybe you have, have you overcome such problems no no this is an extremely important point that you have raised and that is why i took some time to explain to you uh, professor satish dhawan's concept of this uh, national natural resources management involving the central agencies involving states final users in uh, right from the beginning you know in in order to make sure that the, the technology that you develop or the solutions that you provide are ultimately going to be used absorbed by the final end stakeholders i have three four points one is the problems should be genuine problems of the country knowing crop production is a genuine issue of the country or even of those people farmers have their own issues related to agrometeorological advisories whether it will rain whether it will have humidity etc fisheries where do i get fisheries etc so first is the problems themselves which you want to address they should be genuine problems of the country issues so this is one thing which we did in the early 80s itself to identify sitting with all stakeholders right from uh, the ministries states uh, and the non governmental organizations the people ngos with all of them this is first thing second thing very important thing is you involve these stakeholders in the definition of demonstration experiments also don't just uh, say that yes okay i will develop a big brother attitude and you give it no you involve them right from the beginning of the formulation stage that is the second thing third is all of them may not understand but at least a few of them you tell them that you need to know how these things work that means a certain amount of training or capacity finally the actual demonstration of those things in there along with them then only the and all this we have adopted in almost all of these things that i mentioned to you so this end holder and the users uh, basically believing that this is useful to them is important only when you go through all these steps now there were been always skeptics for example i will give you in uh, mid 80s etc forest survey of india i mean I, again when i'm taking the names you please don't uh, consider it as i'm uh, uh, i'm laying any aspersions on that thing see the government of india uh, you know there was a problem that the forest survey of india said that they have i think 21% under forest of the geographical area of the country and uh, national remote sensing agency with their landsat data analysis they came up and said that they have uh, we have actually only 16% or so so this became an issue and this had to be resolved so there were uh, joint teams made of uh, 
scientists from uh, here as as well as scientists from forest i mean those people who are working in forests etc so it turns out at that time that the actual forest area came to 19% how did it come about because many of our people while interpreting felt that during the winter when there is no cover when the leaves are shed etc it gives a different kind of signature so they treat it as there is no forest that so so that is how proper season you have to use the data so you need subject experts in these things etc so finally it came 19% so that was a reconciliation done at that time so now then the parliament said that every two years the forest survey of india has to put up a report in the parliament what is our forest area there are no other questions okay so they have to do it so whether and they have to identify which are the areas which are enclosed which are the areas which are degraded where forest afforestation has actually taken place in a map form so this is a this is a job given to the forest service not to isro it is to the forest uh, department they have to do that. so the, obviously they acha now they initially were very comfortable with using landsat uh, data now of course as long as indian uh, data was not available it was fine but after 1988 once the indian remote sensing satellite started becoming available so you know it is always very difficult to change people from their comfort zones so they were not willing initially to change from whatever they were doing with uh, using landsat data to that thing. so you have to show that you get very uh, equally important equally reliable results from this data so it had happened it had happened in this case so a lot of efforts was put in so after some time yes uh, economics also plays a role in uh, in making these decisions so uh, today the entire department uses the data to make the forest related things etc now agriculture you know in agriculture what happens is uh they will always say that there are two parts in agriculture you know in any crops one is the area so so many hectares the this crop is grown second is the yield yield is a is a very variable part of it so you can give uh, area very accurately from your satellite data but yield you can't give you know this is a general uh, criticism etc etc then uh, you know when we had joint teams i used to ask them when you say that 280 tons or 250 tons uh, to million million tons is grown in this country on what basis do you give this do you weigh each grain in this country there is no answer to that right that is based upon what that is based upon some hundred a few hundred crop cutting experiments which are done after harvest and then using some statistics it is aggregated to taluka states districts and to the entire country now how do you choose those sites god alone knows because earlier times they it is starting from right from beginning of the british times uh, that you where the actual should be done now scientifically you should choose sites so that all the dynamic range of the yield variation is encompassed in the choice of these uh, crop cutting sites and if you do all these things then only you can do this kind of a statistical aggregation so can remote sensing data help you in identifying sites 
on the basis of the vigor that you see on the satellite images, which we did together. So they were convinced that, look, now I need to change or how many I should do. It depends upon these things. What is the very, if it is a complete homogeneous area, then you don't need too many uh, sites. But if it is the heterogeneity is large, then you require more. So all these things are done, you know, when you do together. That's what I keep telling that when you do these things together with confidence of each other, that you are not having any uh, superiority complex or a big brotherly attitude and do these things, etc. This is how it has grown. And uh, so uh, there have been instances where uh, uh, people, you know, in the initial stages, people used to say this is at best useful for planning level, not for actual thing. Now, you know, I must give you an example of uh, groundwater, drinking water. See, groundwater is uh, below the ground. Satellite remote sensing doesn't see where water, it only sees surface water. But uh, satellite sees a certain uh, what we call as surface expressions or signatures, which show you the convergence with whose convergence will tell you which are the most probable areas where groundwater is likely to be formed below the ground. So this is what is done using satellite data for all 10 or 12 states of this country. Now, on the basis of these maps, which show what are the prospect zones and villages are also marked on that. And those villages which have no drinking water source, then we say, you please go here and do the digging or the bore well. And even just year before last, I think two years back in Karnataka, there was this problem. And uh, they said, uh, look, um, uh, the drinking water problem. So they have their own department, uh, geology department and drinking water. So they took up the maps which they themselves have prepared and found out them. They updated them using the recent satellite data. They went and got the drinking water. I mean, basically success of the bore wells and provided the drinking water. So when they start seeing the success of these maps, the information that is there to the extent that they require, then only this. And this is the process. So uh, there are many experiments, for example, uh, even, you know, urban areas violations. Today, people are using uh, earlier in 5.8 meter in 1995, uh, in spite of the fact that I keep claiming that that was the best civilian uh, satellite of highest spatial resolution at that time, no urban planning person uh, was convinced that uh, that data can be used. They only used it for perspective planning what they call as, you know, perspective planning. For example, uh, ba Bangalore Metropolitan Regional Development Authority, complete area. If you want to do some planning, you can use it. But if you want to do town planning, that means where they start showing each uh, layouts, et cetera, et cetera, it is not useful. But today, when you have much higher resolution satellite data, obviously one meter and so on and so forth, yes, they can be used. But I keep telling them now that look, today, you don't have to use satellite technology. I mean, of course, I'm not in the business of, I mean, I'm not there in an active service. But I, when somebody asked me recently, do you, you know, some people are asking for better than 50 centimeter uh, satellite uh, for uh, some of the applications, etc. I said, please don't do it because 
whatever you want, much better, 10 centimeter, 20 or 30 centimeter resolution satellite data, you can do it for inaccessible regions across the borders for surveillance purposes, et cetera. But within the country, when you want to require it of that kind of a resolution satellite data, you are basically requiring it for infrastructure development activities. And those are essentially confined to a particular region. And today there are drones which contain a large number of sensors which are inertially referenced. You get very high resolution satellite data with proper mapping, et cetera. Use it. You can also do stereos. So today the technology is advancing. So you don't have to use satellites for everything. Okay, satellites are useful for many applications. I mean, of, of course, ocean and atmosphere, you cannot cover uh, with the drones and such things, but that essentially a large number of parameters which are required, they have to be done by uh, satellites. In um, uh, monitoring environment and uh, all these uh, applications, which I said, yes, you require satellites, but satellites are not necessary for applications in your own areas for, uh, you know, for more of a infrastructure development thing of a very specific areas, uh, let's say a few tens of kilometers, square kilometer area, etc. Why should you only build a satellite for that thing? Unless you say that uh, uh, I want a satellite of high spatial resolution to map each and every inch of this country. But then also you will have problems because you have forests, you have so many other things, they keep changing. So uh, you have to make a judicious choice of uh, the kind of data that you require. And uh, I have found that it is basically confidence building with the users. You should not bluff. I mean, if you ask me in a colloquially, you should show them, involve them right from the beginning, do experiments jointly, show them, and demonstrate that thing, utility, et cetera. And that is what has been done in the, uh, you know, that has the, I would say all our earlier chairman, Professor Dhawan, Professor Yuar Rao, Dr. Kasturam, I mean, that is how it, this whole thing has been built over the years. So uh, I, I hope I have uh, made my point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting aspects is uh, this, emergence of, um, let's say, the geospatial hubs of uh, many, many companies in India, especially in and around the Hyderabad belt. Uh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of them, of course, are now doing business globally. And, you know, they are also doing a lot of work uh, uh, across the international uh, geospatial arena. So can you, you know, describe yeah. how these uh, yeah. people were empowered? Yeah. I, I, I tell you, I have some very... Um, personal experience of this kind. Uh, see, I was also at the, uh, the National Remote Sensing Agency Hyderabad during the period uh, 2001 to 2005. Uh, I, from SAC, I was sent there. You know, during the years of uh, late 90s and uh, beginning, there was this uh, concept that why should uh, ISO be doing all the work, etc. So a large number of industries should take up this. So a lot of geospatial industries uh, uh, vendors, so-called, that time, uh, they came up. In fact, there were 200 of them in Hyderabad and surrounding areas, and some in Bangalore, etc., etc. But during that time, one of the problems was they were dependent. They were dependent on um, the projects and other things which was to be given by the government or government-sponsored schemes. So uh, they were, in some sense, handicapped because obviously. Uh, the the catchment uh, which was available was limited and 
the, if you have too many people uh, you know looking for the same slice of uh, cake uh, there were difficulties so geospatial uh, industries at that time and also the kind of advances which in satellites which have come now more recently after the high resolution satellites of 1 meter and better and also a lot of uh, software related things etc which was not there during those time that time i did find although there was a lot of encouragement to have these uh, geospatial industries during that period they did not blossom as much as possible as because they were also not looking out so much uh, uh, generating work for themselves from outside uh, etc there although there were some few who were taking up work in uh, nepal and some african countries etc but now and also i must tell you about the software which is required you see if you at that time it was mostly the um, arkinfo gis software or commercially of the shelves you know some of these software etc which are by no means inexpensive so uh, the overall uh, what shall i say environment was perhaps not so conducive for this growth but in the last uh, 10 years or so i think in terms of advances in the satellite resolutions data in terms of open source software in terms of the decrease in the cost of these uh, computer analysis systems and all those things etc and the business which is outside and a large number of young people who can adapt to these things plus there is a convergence of uh, this uh, gps uh, you know and also in those things so all this put together i think uh the situation is extremely uh, encouraging in my opinion uh for doing a large amount of geospatial uh, work uh, in the country and uh, it is not just services and products you know ultimately as far as the user is concerned he is interested in a product you know which is useful to him or a provide a service to him so now i think uh, i i see a great potential for indian Uh, geospatial industries because of this and tomorrow uh, hopefully they should also adapt uh, and see navik i mean our own uh, regional remote sensing i mean our uh, our satellites for navigation gn you know gnss or navik what we call navigation satellite system uh, which also provide you coordinates uh, xyz coordinates uh, so uh, put together that there is a lot of location based services which are to be come up in the country which are already there Uh, although gps has you know become uh, embedded in many of the things but it is possible that you if you get into uh, using indian um, navigation satellite data plus the remote sensing satellite data plus the gis a uh, lot of other attribute data make location based services make products which are directly usable by somebody i think uh, there is a lot of scope for that thing uh, i am quite convinced that uh, Uh, although uh, at that time uh, when i said beginning of 2000 uh, there were difficulties uh, there was not much uh, growth of the market but now i'm sure there will be growth of the market plus also you know a large number of constellation of satellites some people can get into building up constellation of satellites uh, which are you know earlier this miniaturization and smaller satellites etc was not heard of but now uh technology was so much advanced that uh, if planet labs can give you everyday data uh, i mean why not uh, there are many applications like disaster monitoring or many of the things which require 
data of high coverages, I mean, very frequent coverages. So people could do, uh, there is a greater demand for, um, uh, till today, you know, constellation of satellites, both carrying both the synthetic aperture radar and optical, because many a times uh, disasters, which are uh, floods or cyclones or any of those things are always covered by clouds region. So you require SAR, but SAR also, uh, which is lightweight, I mean, not a very big SAR and constellations so that uh, uh, you get the data when you want it. That is one of the problems, you know. So a constellation of that kind of a things is very much required for disaster monitoring throughout the world. Uh, recently, somebody has launched, I, I don't know whether it is some country, uh, synthetic aperture radar, one or two satellites small, uh, weighing less than 400 kg or so. But this is an area uh, uh, which is required. But of course, uh, many a times people keep saying that the disaster related things are all public good. Will you make uh, will you recover the cost that you put in, you know? So you will have to find uh, ways of turning out this uh, data uh, fusion and data integration into products which a particular user can uh, directly use and that has a value. So I, if I remember correctly, uh, one somewhere I read uh, Landsat 8, when they made the Landsat 8 data uh, free, freely available to the global community, uh, just simple argument, they said, that uh, when there is a lot of uh, business in uh, value addition, uh, data by itself should not cost. You give the data free, there are a large number of people who will use this data, add value to that one, and they will start making products and that will earn them profits. So overall industry, overall country uh, makes um, uh, you know, uh, does get a return uh, for the money that you have spent on building the satellite. So that's the concept which is uh, gained momentum. Okay. Right. And one of the aspects now you talked about is the emergence of these small satellites and you see now, you know, many companies also now some startups in India like Pixel targeting to yeah. build these constellation of small satellites. There's yeah. a Physics limitation, of course, as to how 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 much you know limits you can get with these uh, smaller satellites due mm -hmm. to pure you know physics uh, driving a lot of this image resolutions. But yeah. you see, you know, a world where ISRO can work on you know newer technology like higher um, higher quality thermal imaging or you know higher quality uh, SAR satellites and. Uh, you know, these companies that are emerging for the first time in India can take over some of the lower end imaging needs, you know, three, four, five meter kind of data uh, where they cannot, let's say, build 30 centimeter data in optical or, you know, 50 centimeter SAR or something like that, where the investment is too large. So do you see that possibility emerging in India in the next coming years? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I see that thing and I entirely agree with you. Uh, I think uh, any government-based space research organization should uh, should uh, concentrate or should focus more attention on some things which are uh, advanced technology, which require a certain amount of infrastructure-related developments. Uh, you mentioned one which is extremely important, that is the thermal infrared region. Uh, 
you know thermal infrared region with uh, better spatial resolution is an area uh, which uh, we should uh, concentrate and those things which are like uh, making electro optical sensors uh, visible and near infrared with uh, moderate resolution or even better resolution of high meters or some such thing i think those are things which you have already demonstrated very well uh, they can be taken up and whatever uh, you know infrastructure facilities are required for uh, testing them and ensuring quality calibrations etc they can be provided by the uh, isro which already has many of these things and i think these are the things which uh, currently uh, you know whatever that new space india limited is uh, engaged in i'm sure they will be uh, uh, doing those things and one should concentrate more on um, advanced technologies uh, synthetic aperture radar is something which uh, uh, in all microwave sensors for that matter is something which i'm extremely uh, keen for example we only talked about sar and uh, scattermeter but there is also another one which is altimeter altimeter is also a very precision instrument which measures the sea surface height uh, which is also in uh, important in uh, uh, you know many tsunami related things uh, we haven't developed and that requires uh, you know very very precise orbit determination uh, so those are things uh, which we should um, we meaning i mean i'm no more a part of that but i think uh, the bigger organization should concentrate on uh, there is also you know one of the things that we are um, isro and uh, jpl uh, nasa are building that is the uh, dual frequency sndl frequency radar uh, that is called nisar nasa indian isro radar to frequency which is uh, 12 meter uh, unfurlable antenna so that is something which is a global mission which will measure phase uh, deformations with through interferometry globally it will measure the biosphere uh, globally every month and it will also look at the cryosphere uh, so these are more of science related things at a broad level uh, so that also is a uh, both technology wise as well as data wise processing wise and science wise extremely important and i'm sure uh, i think there will be a lot of emphasis on that kind of work also you know uh, broadly today uh, when i see after 40 years remote sensing is uh, is a tool right and uh, one it can be used for large studies in global change climate change studies etc which requires let's say 40 years 50 years calibrated calibrated data from different sensors different satellites if you say sea surface height what was it 50 years of 40 years ago and today in terms of fraction of millimeters i mean today you measure with one satellite tomorrow you measure with another satellite or sea surface temperatures or any of those related things which are extremely difficult unless you do a large amount of consistent measurements uh, standards calibrations all these kind of things so that is a kind of science even including greenhouse gases like you measure carbon dioxide or methane or any so that is one kind of work which uh, remote sensing satellites have to do and those are different kind of uh, measurements which are. second are these uh, operational remote sensing satellites which are used for you know applications day to day applications etc which are which need not be done by space agencies i mean they can be done 
by many of the things which are there. Third, of course, there are, uh, you know, derived from this knowledge, people are also doing planetary missions. I mean, after all, it is the same set of sensors, you know, I always, that's why I took a lot of interest when Chandrayaan-1 was launched by India, because we, I said, look, we, we, we are the people who have already dealt with remotely sensed data. And after all, it is instead of the Earth, this is a data which is uh, looking at the moon. And uh, in fact, uh, there are advantages because moon, there is no atmosphere. Uh, on the Earth, the atmosphere corrupts my signal. So you need corrections, whereas uh, the signal on the moon without atmosphere. So it is much better to do that thing. And moon, the gravity is less, so you can go to lower uh, uh, altitudes, you get much better resolution. So doing remote sensing of the planets has its own advantages. Mm -hmm. Of course, not everywhere. Venus has a problem, but Mars also has a uh, less uh, atmosphere. Uh, it is only half of what uh, Earth size is, etc. So remote sensing has different, what shall I say, objectives. One is science, other is operational applications. And the third, you know, point is these no more, no more data. Data has to be converted into products and services, which is a, which is very important. That only people who understand the users have to do that. So they have to interact very closely with the uh, users and do that kind of work. So that is also another thing. Third, of course, is this uh, you know the uh, the what they call as constellations and uh, tra uh, trains. You know the, the concept of arrays formation. There are many such things which are also there. That is, of course, again, a different kind of remote sensing where you need to have communication between uh, different elements, uh, different satellites themselves. And, um, you know, when you get the data, there is a lot of uh, development of software in order to make sure that, that the data becomes useful. So that is a different uh, third type of. So there are different dimensions compared to when we started, we were only, you know, uh, more or less worried about how do I get this data? How do I use to identify or map something as it? But today I think uh, it has gone beyond uh, those things. And the other part, which is absolutely related to pattern recognition, uh, surveillance, that, that is an entirely different uh, set of remote sensing, which, which I don't uh, have much familiarity. So there are different aspects of remote sensing. And actually, that brings me to this question of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning coming into remote sensing today. Uh, mm -hmm. You have broadly three main spheres combining all of these. One is, you know, people who are trying to implement intelligence on board satellites. For example, I work with many, many companies uh, here in Europe, for example, who are trying to implement, you know, very high quality GPUs, very high quality computing on board satellites where you can make satellites more aware and intelligent. For example, you know, how do you make sure that you don't image cloudy areas and, you know, you only image uh, areas uh, which are, you know, visible and, and usable data for that matter. And to increase the amount of data that you can use on the ground instead of downlinking data, for example, that has clouds in them and you have to post-process them or it may not be completely used, unusable at all, for example, right? So you're adding intelligence to satellites by themselves, one layer of it. Second is, you know, you're trying to integrate cloud so that the delivery of the data becomes seamless and very high speed. 
with respect to cloud and then you know you're using as you said for example pattern matching or uh, machine learning or object identification and all of this to post process data to deliver real you know insights on top of it uh, which can go into any banking system or it can go into many other systems that people can use directly or so on um, how well prepared are we in india for this or do, do, we, do we need uh, let's say a dedicated uh, group that looks at all of this to fuse not just satellite but also ground based data statistics drone data you know air based data anything like that the, so that the quality of the data set becomes extremely big and and complements each other to actually you know give more usable uh, insights and usable services to end users yeah i i, I entirely uh, agree with you uh, in fact today uh, i have seen many uh, institutes particularly iits uh, there are uh, professors who have been working on such things perhaps uh, in their own uh, domain and in the in a smaller groups uh, on, on artificial intelligence machine learning pattern recognition uh, i remember having met a person rotel uh, or somebody in iit kharagpur iit bombay also so there in many academic institutes Uh, there are people who are working on this data fusion machine learning as well as artificial intelligence uh, in order to use or even cloud computing uh, in many of these aspects they are all working using remotely sensed data data mining related etc so that kind of effort exists in the in india now whether all of that will relate to a focused effort in making certain uh, uh, final products and services which the industries or somebody else can take it up that i do not know honestly i do not know because i am not uh, familiar uh, with those things uh, to what extent they have uh, graduated or are they willing to spend their efforts because these things will require some efforts of some intellectual level uh, in which they will have to invest uh, beforehand Uh, and then go in for the uh, actual commercialization of that thing so this kind of a, uh, environment whether it has come up to i i am not familiar i'm sure it must be there but uh, as far as you said artificial intelligence you know many years ago uh, we had this problem uh, exactly what you are telling me uh, if it is a cloud then uh, we need not image the data uh, because it is unnecessarily Uh, adds to data transmission or station uh, you know our station has to receive it and then you find the data obviously you need to develop some algorithms which detect a pixel which is cloud which is not cloud or even if you have to detect it you uh, see it much before that means there has to be some advanced information so that uh, you switch off or whatever it is also i remember there used to be some problems associated with the distinction between a cloud and a uh, snow also uh, because uh, both of them are highly reflecting uh, from the top above when you see them then we were also worrying about which the spectral band uh, the cloud and the snow will look different so that you use uh, this so called uh, discriminatory uh, this one at that particular band as well. but all those things were very primitive and experimental in nature but uh, i think today data mining is something which people should uh, because there is so much of data from so many satellites of same areas uh, 
taken for different intervals of time with different uh, you know uh, conditions etc all that can be used in order to make uh, some intelligent uh, you know conclusions or observations which people are doing in uh, what shall i say in uh, probably defense uh, areas etc i'm sure they are doing those things you know and constantly they are doing because they need to update themselves but in the civilian domain uh, uh, such things uh, to be useful as i keep mentioning uh, it has to come in the form of a product or a service uh, so that is something which currently to the best of my knowledge it is more on the research areas etc private industries uh, if they need to do they must invest in certain intellectual uh, efforts but uh, but that is the way it will go definitely right and you know from a let's say purely kind of non technical aspect of all of this uh, one of the things that i definitely wonder is um, a lot of the countries even around the world they kind of fail to communicate to its public as to why they should spend on space especially developing countries um, and for me Uh, there's uh, again um, a model that india can pioneer there by involving certain economists and social scientists to come up with a yearly framework that can be updated to kind of tell people what is the value in productivity in certain communities and the impact on the gdp that it has for certain applications that uh, are rolled out across the country right there is some limited evidence uh, in that sense where you have certain research papers that tell you know certain case studies at certain instances of time but these are not rolling frameworks and these are not taking into account the entire geography or the entire size of the community in india uh, or you know uh, combining the entire effect of of remote sensing products in that case so my question is you know how do you uh make sure that you know we involve certain experts who are either economists or social scientists or to work with space scientists to map all of this so that you know the average indian actually gets to know what is the impact that uh, isro is having or you know the the remote sensing data community is having uh, across uh, and then you know there's more and more confidence in uh, and it actually contributes back to how much uh, the taxpayer is able to also fund isro in that sense right because if we are able yeah. to actually communicate very effectively to the uh, taxpayer as to what is the benefit that the taxpayer is getting it in, in fact you know it pr- provides a lot more confidence for the taxpayer to tell the government to fund even more you know fund two times three times four times more that uh, that isro is already getting you know i i agree with you that this kind of efforts uh, on a regular basis are required Uh, sometime back i mean as you rightly said uh, the economics of india space program uh, because you know <laughs> being a government uh, organization every time uh, the either the public accounts committee or someone else will ask these uh, questions what is the benefit of what all you are doing etc uh, there was a, a study commission this was uh, the economics of india space program this was uh, done by professor shankar of uh, uh, university of madras and uh, this is oxford university press this is a book uh, which was published in 
uh, this book. I, I have a copy of that here. Now, uh, obviously, such efforts, this is quite a, quite exhaustive things of 312 pages of this book. Professor Shankar is a well-known economist. And later on, as I mentioned, there were two volumes which have been brought out by uh, Indian Institute of Applied Economic Research on two specific applications. On uh, This was in 2013 or 14. Uh, which was commissioned by the Ministry of Earth Sciences because they were also being uh, asked uh, on two things. One was on um, uh, fisheries applications, what all uh, is the benefit. Uh, the second one was agromet advisory services, you know, on the basis of so meteorological forecast that you make, add agricultural information of what crop, when to sow, at what harvesting, at what stage is it, is it, uh, should, should it be irrigated? Should it not be irrigated because there is a likely rainfall? Should you apply pesticide not? I mean, so agriculture information plus the meteorological information, agro-meteorological advisories, not at very large district levels, but at a group of villages level to the farmers through the mobile. So this activity they had taken up and they had done it for a large number of villages. In fact, one of the industries, ITC, uh, Indian tobacco company was also involved in it. That uh, report is also available, uh, how much it was useful to the farmers, whether they could, etc. But a much larger canvas of such activities is required. But, you know, all these require a certain amount of provoking or certain amount of uh, nudging from, uh, I, I don't know who, but somebody has to do this in order to make people, because some IAM professor or anybody else, they will not, I mean, you know, the economists who are there, who, on their own, they will not do. Whether ISRO should uh, commission such things, which uh, they should be doing, or somebody else should be doing. But there is a need for such a thing, so that when, it, uh, when this information goes down to the uh, much larger section of people, then they will start, uh, okay, I think this is worth doing, worth spending money on. So efforts have been there. But uh, I think the more efforts of this kind are required. And if I'm not mistaken, such things are done in the US. Uh, there are many studies of this kind, etc. done. Even the industries do that there. You know, consultancy programs, they do such kind of things so that uh, it spurs the activities of industries. Uh, so yes, I, I agree. Uh, there is much more of this kind uh, which requires to be done because uh, by beating our own drum alone, uh, we don't, <laughs> we necessarily don't uh, convey the message. So uh, somebody else has to tell that this is this is important or this is this has helped in this way. There have been some, but uh, much more needs to be done of that kind. And, and one of the interesting again aspects on the end user side is this emergence of smartphone into yeah. normal Indian's hand, right? So normally. I've read some of those papers that you mentioned about, including the ones from fisheries and so on. And I see the, let's say even a, a bureaucratic fix that the system has when it comes to what I would call as G2, G2C applications. Because, you know, for example, if uh, the fisheries survey of India needs to be brought in from ISRO to you know, connect to the fisher, fisherman community, there is a G to G to C kind of model where you have a government entity talking to a government entity, then talking to a citizen in that sense. And 
you know the uh, there is a possibility of using now smartphones to for isro to provide end user applications directly to citizens uh, and to build citizen facing apps that citizens can directly use without any you know other institutions being involved to directly pass on the benefits to a citizen through you know some remote sensing applications that are there right so it could be for example in this fisheries case uh, where all of this pf side information or or any other information could be transmitted to through to android apps or uh, so on and so forth there may be some other apps like this that can be used by some other communities uh, for sure in remote sensing in all of this uh, do you see this as a trend do you see you know any work being done on these front how how is the roll out of certain applications and all of these yeah uh, you know there is a lot of uh, work being done today i find on citizen centric science it is general term and i found that uh, uh, some apps have also been developed uh, one of our institutions you know indian institute of remote sensing at dehradun uh, where a lot of this academic work goes on they have developed uh, necessary applications and they use this uh, bhuvan platform and with the smartphone any a user etc uh, who go who has this uh, smartphone he collects whatever information that goes on to that platform and it comes back to the people who are for example in many of the disaster situations including kedarnath the disaster or any of the other things etc so these um, smartphone based apps have been used in many of these things particularly in case of disaster related applications they have been used uh, but uh, obviously there is a scope for uh, uh, increase of those things but uh, you know uh, there is also nowadays uh, more and more tendency that isro need not do everything uh, so uh, there are many states themselves do such a work uh, using smartphones there are other organizations which are doing so uh, particularly i am familiar with the uh, indian institute of remote sensing at dehradun they have been doing and also the national remote sensing agency with their one platform they have developed uh, some of those softwares which are used uh, with the uh, smartphones now this uh, institution which i told you the, the bahal nobis national crop forecasting center which uses these uh, people farmers uh, and using the smartphones to give them the information on the crop health or any of those things to them to they also use this kind of applications etc so there is a there is a growth of uh, this kind of work uh, in the country so i have I, yeah please sorry uh, i'd say uh, we you know had a conversation for 2 hours thank you so much for sparing you know so much <laughs> no uh, it's an opportunity for me also to express myself i may not have said everything that i wanted to say or uh, it's quite possible because this is you know in all these things you forget a few things you whatever comes to your mind uh, and now that uh, from my active career uh, which was there till uh, 2012 so it's the 8 years which have passed so obviously the scenario also has changed considerably but uh, i'm quite uh, familiar with uh, the way we evolved and the way we evolved uh, and there the emphasis as i mentioned was always on making sure uh, that technology development is not for the sake of uh, development alone 
but to ensure that it is useful and it is useful at the ground level. Uh, so that was our emphasis and to a large extent, uh, we succeeded uh, in that. And that is why we were, uh, we were envied uh, applications program, particularly remote sensing applications program for quite some years. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I'll, you know, one last final question maybe before I let you go. So, um, do you think that, uh, let's say, ISRO missed the bus on any technology or any initiative when it comes to remote sensing, when you look back at your own career? Uh, I think this is a very difficult question to answer because, uh, you know, the any organization, what happens is the uh, priorities uh, are based upon uh, on that day's requirements, etc. And... Uh, there are two aspects. One is capacity, other is capability. Capability might exist for a much larger activities, but capacity, if it is not there, then you will take up those which are more uh, you know, challenging at that particular point in time, uh, which, uh, which it can do and which we can also the government, whoever is supporting that activity. So in the process, something else might get uh, Get might get the less emphasis or so and so forth. So these things happen in organizations. But to me, to comment on um, uh, whether ISRO missed this or, or not, uh, because of what, I think it would be very, uh, it, it is neither uh, possible to answer nor it is uh, right on my part to say. Right. So again, so thank you very much for taking so much of your time. I, it's been extremely valuable. Your insights have been extremely valuable. I think, uh, you know, many of the people who are listening to this podcast, I think, can reflect back to a career of uh, 50 years, you know, trying to do a lot of these things. So I'm sure that, you know, people who are trying to do new things now can reflect back a little bit and see where they stand uh, and, you know, whose shoulder they stand on. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for staying until the end. The New Space India podcast has recently started a Patreon account in order to collect your support to produce a documentary that captures the pioneering work done by many of the generation of scientists during the Sarabhai and the Satish Dhawan era. We believe that this will overcome the gap that none of the institutions in India have gone on to create a documentary style space history project that captures both anecdotes and personal history of many of the pioneers of that generation. Please do check out the Patreon account and do consider making a contribution that will help produce this documentary. Thank you for your contributions.